Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Canada is known for a lot of things. The climate can get quite cold. We're generally a friendly and polite people. And of course, we have great music. At least if you're willing to get past Nickelback. But as anyone who listens to Nighttime knows by now, there's much more to Canada. Like everywhere else, we have a dark side. And tonight's story will be a stark reminder of that fact. Something we aren't generally known for something I hope we never will be known for, is our role in the international white supremacist hate group scene. Sadly, neo-Nazism and militant white supremacy is alive and well in Canada. For anyone who follows the news closely, you may have heard about a hack and subsequent data leak from a now-defunct neo-Nazi website called Iron March. This site, in which neo-Nazis had networked and collaborated, included 88 accounts associated with Canadian IP addresses. And that 88 doesn't include the account whose owner came to Canada with a plan to commit a mass shooting at the Halifax Shopping Centre. Nighttime listeners hopefully remember Lindsay Suvonaroth. She was an active member of Iron March and was likely in contact with some of those 88 Canadian members. But regardless, this episode isn't about her. I'm simply illustrating the fact that you may very well have a neo-Nazi in your neighborhood. And like others on the radical far right like Lindsay Suvonaroth and Alexander Bissonnette, they may have terrorism, death, and genocide on their minds. In tonight's episode, I'm going to take you to the front lines of the race war militant white supremacists hope to kickstart. Our story will center around two Canadians— on one side, we have a journalist with the Winnipeg Free Press named Ryan Thorpe. And on the other side, we have Patrick Matthews, a Manitoba man who had moonlit as the recruiter for a secretive neo-Nazi hate group. Now I say Patrick Matthews moonlit with the group because he had another job that made his involvement in militant white supremacism even more concerning. When not conspiring to overthrow the government and create a white ethno-state, he was a combat engineer in the Canadian military. Well, at least he was before Ryan Thorpe's investigative journalism outed him. Now, as bizarre as this already sounds, that setup doesn't even scratch the surface of the story we're about to hear. So buckle up for this one. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we are joined by Ryan Thorpe, the Winnipeg-based journalist who infiltrated a parliamentary white supremacist group that's active in Canada. Our story is the exposure and the downfall of Patrick Matthews. Described as a bit of a misfit in the military, Master Corporal Patrick Matthews is a member of the Canadian Armed Forces Reserve. Matthews is a combat engineer, the troops responsible for building bridges and blowing up obstacles on the battlefield. The Winnipeg Free Press reported that Matthews is part of an international neo-Nazi group known as The Base that advocates for a coming race war. We'll, we'll start with introductions, Ryan. So tell me a bit about yourself. 
Uh, certainly, yes. I'm, I was born and raised in the, the prairies. Um, I grew up in uh, in Manitoba, uh, but Saskatchewan born. Um, from pretty early age, ever since I, I gave up on my dream to one day be an NHL goaltender, <laughs> I, I knew that uh, you know what I wanted to do with my life was be a writer. I, uh, I was kind of obsessed with books and writing from a pretty young age, and then eventually, as I got older. I landed a byline in my local newspaper when I was 18, and at that point, I, you know, figured maybe I'll, I'll be a journalist. Um, and so, and at that point, honestly, it was probably more of a way I could just pay my bills writing while I like wrote novels or something like that. But eventually, I, um, after kind of working and traveling for a bit, I went to journalism school. I went to Niagara College, uh, their journalism program, which is is just a two-year program. Uh, but I went from 2015 to 2017. I graduated there in uh, April 2017, I think it was, and I went and did an internship at the Hamilton Spectator in uh, Hamilton, Ontario. And while I was there, I worked uh, with a with a colleague on a kind of a six week uh, investigative project on drug use in the city's high schools. And then after I wrapped up that internship, I I landed another. Uh, longer internship at the Winnipeg Free Press, and I've pretty much uh, been here ever since. Wow. I've managed to find a way to, to stick around the paper. <laughs> um, technically, my uh, my role is, my official title is general assignment reporter, which means I could be reporting on anything on any given day, uh, but I tend to report mostly on crime. I would say I, I do a lot of homicide reporting, and then uh, my editors are also good about freeing up some of my time to work on these kind of long-term investigative projects, which is um, the stuff I enjoy doing the most. One of those investigative, like the deeper pieces, is the one that I think is pretty safe to say at this point is kind of a highlight of your career. That's the um, homegrown hate. Uh, I guess we'll call it like a mini series or a series of of articles. But b- before we jump into the piece, we'll, in, in the kind of the work you did, we'll, we'll start at the beginning because I, I believe it all starts from your point of view, anyway, with kind of like learning about like a series of posters that were being put up around Winnipeg. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you tell me about like how you learned about the posters and kind of you know why you decided to pursue this further. Certainly. Uh, there was actually someone who is a friend of um, one of the people that works in our newsroom was walking around Winnipeg in the St. James neighborhood of our city, and they came across a recruitment poster. And they took a look at it, and while they weren't sure entirely what it was, um, it had this slogan called, Save Your Race, Join the Base. And then the imagery was quite fascistic and, and militaristic in nature. So they were pretty sure that this was a white nationalist recruitment poster. So they, they took a photo of it, and they tore down the poster, and they sent that photo into their friend who works at the Winnipeg Free Press, um, that individual doesn't work in the city news section, so they kicked it over to our city news editor and said, hey, maybe you'll want to take a look at this. Um, and then the tip, the news tip, got forwarded along to me. Uh, I think because I had had some experience reporting on far-right extremism in uh, Winnipeg uh, in particular, but also Manitoba more generally. So this news tip comes across my desk. Um, and I do some online digging and I find out that these posters are actually kind of popping up all over the place. Um, there's clearly a concerted effort to uh, put these up in multiple different areas of the city. Uh, and then I do a little bit more digging online. And I come across 
this 2018 expose that Vice News did um, on this organization called The Base, which is what these propaganda posters were, the organization they were for. Um, and after I read that 2018 Vice piece, I knew that this wasn't your run-of-the-mill group of racists that we sometimes see in this city. This was very... This was, this was more extreme than anything, any sort of far-right activity that we had seen, uh, at least in a very long time. Um, and so I knew that we had something concerning on our hands. And so I went to an editor of mine, and I presented what I had learned. And I said, look, there's kind of two ways we could approach this story. On the one hand, I could track the neighborhoods these posters have gone up in. I could reach out to some academics or people who track far-right extremism, do a couple of interviews. I could probably turn that story around in one day. Or I could reach out to this group, posing as someone that's uh, a white nationalist and is interested in joining, and, and see what happens. And that, that second option uh, was the one I wanted to do. I felt like that was the only way we were actually going to get to the bottom of, of what was going on in our city. And thankfully, uh, my editor gave me the green light to do that. And so I essentially developed a fictitious persona and created a throwaway email account to reach out to this group. Wow. And, and when you were start, like, well, for one, I think, were you surprised when your editor gave you the okay? Uh, I, I wasn't sure, actually, when I was going into that, uh, what, what they were going to say. Um, I think at that point in time, uh, we didn't know what was going to happen next. We didn't know how far we were going to take this. I don't mm -hmm. think anyone had an idea that it was going to turn into this kind of in-depth undercover investigation than it did. And if I remember correctly, what my editor told me was like, okay, we'll create the email account, reach out to them, and then we'll see what happens okay. next. It, by no means were they giving me, you know, permission to go, uh, you know, deep into this. They were just like, let's do step one and then we'll regroup and we'll take it from there. Mm -hmm. So looking at kind of the story as it unfolded from our present vantage point, I do know how far this actually went, where this basically <laughs> became an international story. And, you know, yeah. a, a lot has changed since you created that throwaway email account and sent, uh, sent that first email. So, so how did it all happen? Like, how did you go from creating the account, sending the email to actually infiltrating this group, I'm, I'm sure this neo-Nazi militant group doesn't open their doors to um, members of the Winnipeg Free Press. <laughs> no, they, they definitely try and keep us out. Um, so when I created this email account, I, I reached out to them, created, you know, a, a kind of a persona. And, uh, and I, you know, said, hey, I'm a white nationalist. I've, you know, lived in Winnipeg for several years. I'm in my mid-20s. I've been disappointed with the state of the movement here. And when I saw these posters, I got excited because I thought, you know, there might be some like-minded folks in this community. Um, they essentially sent me back a questionnaire, which it was like a pre-developed questionnaire they send out, at least they did send out to every potential recruit. They asked, um, you know, about like what kind of physical condition I was in, whether or not I had military experience or firearms training, if I had a background in chemistry or engineering. Um, they asked about my political worldview. I filled out this questionnaire, sent it back in, and then over the next couple of days, I went back and forth by email with the group's founder, who was then going by the pseudonym of Roman Wolf. Uh, eventually, they invited me to download the encrypted messaging app, Wire, uh, which was the platform this group was then using to communicate. They might still be, I'm not sure. 
Um, and so I downloaded this. I engaged in some more message exchanges with the group's founder. And essentially this entire time I'm doing simultaneous research so that I can correctly parrot back white nationalist talking points. Because mm-hmm. I knew a little bit about this stuff um, just by virtue of having reported on extremism in the past, but, but certainly not enough to be convincing. Um, and eventually they said, all right, we're going to do a voice call interview. So you could essentially do a phone call over this encrypted app. And they invited me to do an interview one night. Um, and minutes before it's set to begin, they actually reveal, oh, it's not just going to be you and the founder. It's going to be, there's going to be like six to eight other members listening in on the line. Um, so that was a bit nerve wracking. But one thing I had done was I'd pre-written scripts and talking points and kept notes of like, you know, things I had told them so I could keep this persona uh, straight in my head. And so I had all these pages laid out on my desk at home as I'm doing this interview so that if I, I can't think of something to say off the top of my head, I can refer down to the pages in front of me. Um, after that voice call interview, uh, they'd at the very end of it, they'd said, all right, well, you know, hang up, get off the line. We're going to talk about how you did, and then we'll be in touch. And the next day I was at the Free Press newsroom just going about my work day and I got a message from the founder who said, you did good last night. Um, You know, the final step is you need to meet our local recruiter in person. So I said I would do that and I set up a date and time with him. And um, essentially I just, I didn't know who I was going to meet, but I had to provide a physical description of myself so that when we met at this park here in Winnipeg, this guy would be able to pick me out of the crowd. Um, so I set up that meeting and I went and I met their local guy in person. Um, and then after that meeting, they invited me to become a member of the organization. I then got access to their kind of centralized uh, chat room, encrypted chat room, and I began documenting the conversations that took place there. Wow. And, and this local recruiter that you met, and now my understanding is like his name, uh, like as a local recruiter is specifically that, like his role in this group called The Base was simply to serve as uh, assistance for recruiting people to to join the group. Like what was the meeting with, with him like? like? What kind of things did he talk to you about or ask you about? Certainly. He was, um, you know, I didn't know at the time that this was an individual named Patrick Matthews, although I was able to later figure that out. But um, he was essentially attempting to establish a small terror cell in Manitoba to begin ramping up paramilitary training. Um, This group is, the base is very clear that they're not trying to recruit mass amounts of people. What they want to do is establish two to three man cells in as many regions as possible. Um, so I knew going into this meeting that I was meeting someone who at least, you know, talked a big game. Um, so I go to this park and, um, you know, I'm pretty nervous going into this meeting and there's a bunch of people there and every time someone's like walking by me, I'm thinking like, is this the person, you know, is this the person I'm here to meet? Is this person a Nazi? Like everyone's a potential Nazi to me until finally this guy walks up. I realized that this is who I'm there to meet. He's about 5'10". He's kind of got hair that's a bit longer on top, but clipped close on the sides. He's got this big, bushy beard, and he's wearing a backpack. And uh, he comes and introduces himself. And we begin talking and kind of establish a rapport. And, um, you know, eventually, maybe like five to ten minutes in, he says, uh, you know, we're going to be working closely with one another so we can drop the pseudonyms if you want, because at that up until that point, everyone had been using pseudonyms. And he said, we can just go by our first names. And I said, 
I thought about it for a split second and I said, all right, my, my name's Ryan. And I held up my hand and, uh, he shook it and he said, my name's Patrick. And, uh, then we start kind of walking through Whittier Park in Winnipeg, which is a pretty large park with a lot of secluded areas. And we go to where we can be alone and there won't be anyone overhearing us. And, um, he tells me that he's a member of the Canadian military and that he's trained as a combat engineer. Um, there's a rail line that kind of runs parallel to Whittier Park, and he points it out to me and says, like, oh, that offers opportunities. And then the direct quote was, you know, even if you don't want to make that go boom, and then he started explaining how you could go about sabotaging a train and derailing a train. Um, he talked uh, openly about committing violence against anti-fascist activists and said that in a well-ordered society, these activists would be dragged out of their homes and strung up. Um, he talked to me about his uh, evolution into a neo-Nazi, kind of the political trajectory that he had gone through over the years. Um, and he was someone who was like quoting off the top of his head these very prominent figures in neo-Nazism, like uh, Tom Metzger or, James, or George Lincoln Rockwell or, or James Mason. He, it was clear to me that this was someone who had spent a fair amount of time reading the literature because he seemed to be able to quote them off the top of his head. So he gave me the impression of a serious ideologue, a, a fanatic in a way, um, a true believer. And obviously, given the fact that he claimed to be in the military and was talking openly about committing acts of violence, um, you know, I, was, I came away from that beating very concerned. I bet. Now, like infiltrating the group alone must have been like quite an accomplishment. But when you when you met with this guy and started realizing his connection to the Canadian military, like that must have almost been like sort of like a cherry on top of this whole thing. Like, how did you go about learning that this Patrick member of the Canadian military was actually a pretty, you know, important person, I guess, in the military? Because he wasn't, in my understanding anyway, he's not just like a low level guy in the military or was not a low-level guy he held the rank of master corporal which means that he did he had spent about eight years in the canadian army reserves and he had um he held a leadership position so there was people in the canadian armed forces that served under him that he was responsible for um now in terms of how i went about i mean after that meeting you know this guy was presenting himself as someone in the military i didn't know if he was telling the truth I didn't, perhaps he was trying to be self-aggrandizing and make himself seem more skilled than he actually was. But I certainly, uh, you know, need, realized, like, I got to get to the bottom of this. I got to see if this guy's telling the truth. So over the next, you know, like two weeks, I document all the conversations that are happening in this group. And meanwhile, this guy, Patrick, is trying to get me to engage in paramilitary training with him. And I had no intention of getting together with a neo-Nazi and running out into the bush with guns. Like, I wasn't going to do that, so I kept coming up with excuses about why we couldn't meet. Um, now, the only downside to this was it limited the amount of time I was going to have on the inside of this organization, because at some point you come up with one too many excuses, they're going to be like, this is a red flag, why won't this guy meet up in person? What's What are his real motivations here? So eventually, I mean, I got together everything I could. Um, I included as many biographical details as I could about this guy, and we decided to publish our first article, which is a long feature called Homegrown Hate. And at that, in that first article, we didn't have 
uh, his identity nailed down. I had some suspicions, but we, we didn't know for sure, so we didn't print anyone's name. So you don't accuse someone of being a Nazi unless you're 100% sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we published this article, but what I did was I threw out as many breadcrumbs as I could. I threw out everything, I included everything I had learned, and I figured that this article would be well-read and that someone who knew him would be able to identify him from the information I'd included, and they would reach out to me. And that's exactly what happened. We published that piece on a Friday, and then over the weekend, I continued to work the story. I developed the source within the Canadian Armed Forces. I confirmed that this guy's name, full name was Patrick Matthews, and that he was indeed a Master Corporal uh, and a combat engineer in the Canadian Army Reserve. And the thing that's noteworthy about him being a combat engineer is they are trained in the use of explosives. In, in fact, I've spoken to combat engineers who say that explosives work is the bread and butter of the field. Um, and so on the Monday, we published the follow-up article publicly identifying Patrick Matthews as the local uh, recruiter for this violent neo-Nazi paramilitary group. And then later that same day, the RCMP raid is home seize his guns, uh, take him into custody, uh, then release him without charges, and then, you know, within a couple of days, he vanishes. There are new developments in the case of an army reservist accused of having links to a neo-Nazi group. First, the Canadian military has relieved Patrick Matthews of duty. Now he's been reported missing. Police did not say whether he remains under investigation for alleged neo-Nazi recruiting. Now, Matthews is a master corporal in the Canadian Army Reserve. He's currently suspended from duty, but for now, he remains a member of the Canadian Armed Forces. Multiple military sources say the Army is anxious to be seen as taking action in this case, especially amid allegations that the forces are not doing enough to quash radical behavior in the ranks. Meanwhile, the search is on for where Matthews has gone. Some inside the RCMP are speculating about whether Matthews could have headed toward the U.S., where a group he was allegedly recruiting for is based. That I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Like for one, releasing the first article, getting the all the kind of activity, uh, basically outing him on that Monday. The police getting involved, the military start um, investigating, or, or seem to be all sp uh, all uh, prompted by your articles. But then when he flees and he's on the run, like I can't imagine what it must feel like to have really pissed off a, a, a neo-Nazi with explosive training. That's obviously a dangerous person. Like, what were you thinking when you heard that he was on the run somewhere and they couldn't find him? Like, you must have been terrified. Well, actually, when everyone was worried, or when Matthews goes missing, I had so many people reaching out to me being like, are you okay? Are you worried? You know, are you safe to be at your home? And to be perfectly honest, I mean, that was a concern, but my first concern was for Matthews' safety. I, I was worried he was going to harm himself, and I really didn't want that to be the outcome to this. I also knew that this was someone who now felt himself on the ropes, and it was someone that I had seen talk openly about murdering people. So I was worried that maybe someone else was going to get hurt. And I, I didn't want that to happen either. And then, yes, there was also a part of me that, uh, you know, was worried for my own safety or the safety of my family, and I certainly had to take a number of um, safety precautions um, after we published that first article. The paper had to take um, safety precautions as well. So, so that was that was certainly worrisome, um, 
but uh, yeah, the main thing that was going through my mind was just like, I hope the authorities get to this guy before something bad happens. Mm-hmm. And they eventually would, but there was a pretty extended period of time. Like, how long was it from when he met, went missing till when he turned up again? Like, it was a, it was months. I'm thinking, right? Yeah, we exposed him on August nineteenth, twenty nineteen, and the FBI took him into custody in Delaware on January sixteenth. 2020. Wow. That must have, you must have felt a a bit of relief when you heard he was in custody in in the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. Relief is the first word that comes to mind, to be honest. Relief that, you know, this had come to a safe conclusion. And then after all of these court documents and FBI affidavits start coming out and being released to the public, and I continue reporting on this story and I start learning you know, where Matthews went, who he was with, what he was up to, what he was allegedly plotting, what he was arrested with allegedly in his possession. Um, The relief, the sense of relief just got greater and greater because I realized that, you know, this was a very serious and potentially volatile and deadly situation. Mm -hmm. What did, uh, like, I I know that all of this was published in the the FBI documents upon his arrest, but if you could summarize it, like, what was he up to down there? Because he he fled Canada and illegally entered the United States, I I believe is what happened. But what was he doing down there? Certainly, yeah. So um, after he fled to the United States, he crosses illegally over the border, Um, There are two other alleged members of the base who the FBI says drove more than 600 miles to pick him up in Michigan. Uh, They pick him up in Michigan, they turn around, they head to Maryland, they spend a night there, they eventually they're in Delaware. At some point in the near future, they go down to Georgia, where another member of the base has a large plot of land, and they... Matthews starts living there for an extended period of time, and they host two paramilitary training events called hate camps at this property. Now, what Matthews and the other members didn't realize was that an undercover FBI agent had actually infiltrated the group and was participating at this paramilitary training event. While they're down there, um, Matthews reveals to an undercover FBI agent, starts talking about me, (laughs) and saying that uh, what I had done should carry the death penalty. Um, He also started hatching a double murder plot with one of his neo-Nazi comrades. Now, at some point, Matthews goes back to Delaware, where he starts living in an apartment with one of his fellow members of the base. And back in Georgia, the kind of ringleader of this cell reveals to uh, this FBI agent that him and Matthews had been planning this double homicide of a married couple that they had identified as anti-fascist activists. But the ringleader eventually came to the conclusion that I can't carry this out with Matthews, otherwise he'll, he'll screw it up and we'll all get busted. But the problem was that they couldn't simply cut him out of the crime because if they carry it out without him, he'll know it was them who did it and he'll be able to link them to it. So this guy now decides what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to drive to Delaware, we're going to have to murder Matthews and his roommate, and then we're going to come back, we'll go murder the married couple that we think are anti-fascist activists, and then we're going to burn their home to the ground. Um, so in this like bizarre twist, like straight out of a thriller novel, Matthews is now in the crosshairs of this murder plot that he helped to hatch. Um, 
Now, meanwhile, back in Delaware, where Matthews is living, him and his roommate start ordering firearms parts. This is, again, according to these FBI documents. Um, They build, over the course of a month, they build a fully automatic assault rifle, so effectively a machine gun. They stockpile more than 1,650 rounds of ammunition. They get their hands on body armor, and they start planning to drive to this pro-gun rights rally in Richmond, Virginia, to open up fire on the crowd from multiple angles. Um, and they talk about engaging in targeted assassinations of law enforcement, of uh, getting up close and quote-unquote hunting people. Uh, meanwhile, Matthews is also recording videos of himself that he hopes to serve as kind of propaganda videos that will incite other violent neo-Nazis into engaging in attacks. And in one of them, he says, and this is, a, this is if not a direct quote, a very close quote, derail some effing trains, poison some water supplies, murder some people. You're going to have to, you better be prepared to do this. If you want the white race to survive, you got to do your part. Um, and so shortly before they're set to plan to drive down to this gun rights rally in Richmond, Virginia, days before it's set to happen, the FBI busts the apartment and take Matthews and his roommate into custody. And the following day, the Georgia cell of the base that has been working on this double murder plot is also all arrested. Wow. So... It, the people who t- who were kind of protecting Matthews while he was down there the, that were planning to kill with him and then kill him, that they're all in custody along with him now? In that week that Matthews was arrested in three separate busts, there was a total of seven members of the base taken into custody. Wow. And it was shortly after that, I believe, the the I guess the founder or leader of it, the guy who you were interviewed with over the phone. I believe he was recently outed, like his identity came out as well. Is I believe that must be all connected to the same FBI investigation. Does that make sense to you? Well, so the reporter, um, who actually I just quite recently uh, spoke to for the first time, his name's Jason Wilson, and he works for The Guardian. And his work exposing the leader of the base is some of the finest investigative reporting that I've seen in, in some time, particularly on this beat. Um, so I would encourage everyone to go look at that article because it was, it was very well done. And uh, yeah, he identified the um, leader of the base as a U.S. national living in Russia uh, right now. Um, now, what ex- there's a lot of theories about, you know, whether or not this organization is a honeypot, whether or not this guy could be, the leader could be an asset of various governments. I think it's speculative and too early to say at this point, but uh, yeah, we do now know who the leader of this group is. He's been unmasked for for the first time. Mm -hmm. And now I think like when I look at the whole story, both like the work you did infiltrating it and outing Matthews, the work this, uh, the journalist you just spoke with in The Guardian, like basically you're just kind of regular journalists who use like kind of journalism as a superpower pretty much to like this group is basically imploding now is the way I see it. It seems like you know, if, if the, the ringleader of it all is the actual ringleader and he's out it, certainly that's going to change the way he operates, as well as these cells kind of that were Matthews were associated with 
there I'm I'm certain that um, their plans have changed radically. Like how how does it feel to have the the work you're you're doing that you're so passionate about so obvious so it makes such an obvious like a, effect on society. I guess like I'm sh- I think it's easy to say that that your work saved lives. Well, I, I certainly hope that this organization now has the wind taken out of its sails and won't be able to continue its expansion and recruitment. And in fact, while I was infiltrating this group uh, during that, that phone conversation with, with the leader, he had mentioned to me like, directly over the phone, he had said, uh, you know, did you see that 2018 Vice piece? That was from uh, Ben uh, McCutch, I think is how you pronounce his last name, and Mac Lamaru, who do fantastic work on this beat over at Vice. Um, and they, and so he asked me, yeah, did you see this Vice piece? And I said, yes. And, uh, and he had said, you know, total hit job, nothing in it is accurate. You know, of course, I was subsequently able to reconfirm everything that they had reported. Um, but he had said that, yeah, they managed to, like, infiltrate one of our chat rooms online um, and that's how they wrote that article. But, you know, after that, we, we upped our security game, you know, so that's not going to happen again kind of thing. Like, little did he know that he was speaking to a reporter that was, was you know, not only infiltrating them, but was actually going to infiltrate them in person this time. Um, and, and during that phone conversation, he said to me, you know, after that vice piece came out, it, it did knock the wind out of our sails. And our recruitment slowed down for a period of time. But now we feel like we're getting back up to the level where we were before. So that vice piece, by the group's own admission, had a negative impact on their ability to expand and recruit. I imagine my reporting has done the same. And I would think that Jason Wilson's for The Guardian has done so as well. So hopefully, you know, all of this work all put together, um, you know, has a negative impact on this organization's ability uh, to carry out its aims. Mm Now, to get back to Matthews a bit, so you, you met with him in the park, you know, all all this time ago, before just before all this really went down. But that wasn't the last time you saw him. I understand it, that you faced him recently during one of the one of his court hearings. Like, did you go to the U.S. to attend some of his hearings? That's correct. Yeah. So after Matthews was taken into custody, he was originally charged with uh, two felony firearms offenses. Um, he has now, there's been additional charges laid against him, um, after the, uh, prosecution, uh, convened some grand juries. So now he's facing a multitude of charges that if convicted on all counts and sentenced to maximum sentences, he would face 20 years in U.S. federal prison and 40 years in state prison. And one thing that's worth pointing out is that there's no, there's no parole in U.S. federal prison. So if you get 20 years, you're serving 20 years. Um, but yeah, so he had a detention hearing um, in Greenbelt, Maryland. Um, so a detention hearing is essentially to see if he'll be granted bail or if he'll have to be uh, kept in custody until this matter is uh, resolved through trial or a plea deal or something. Um, so I, I flew down to Washington, D.C., and then I drove to Greenbelt, Maryland, to attend the detention hearing. And I'm sitting in the courtroom and... Um, you know, it, it certainly it was a bit surreal because this, again, this thing that started with some posters here in Winnipeg, all of a sudden there's like a Washington Post reporter to my left and there's a New York Times reporter here. And, you know, the media, there's a big media presence um, and there's all these FBI agents and Department of Homeland Security and, and stuff. 
Um, but I, so I'm sitting in the courtroom waiting for the, the hearing to begin. And then all of a sudden, the, the side door to the courtroom swings open. And I can hear some, like, shackles jangling. Um, and then all of a sudden uh, emerges Patrick Matthews. Um, and he's dressed in the kind of orange jumpsuit of a U.S. federal prisoner. And he's being led into the courtroom by a bailiff. And as he's being led in, um, his head is like scanning the people in the crowd as if he's looking for folks or, or perhaps he's you know, just trying to see who's there. And then he locks eyes with me. And this is the first time we have seen one another since that night back at Whittier Park here in Winnipeg. It's been five months. And I certainly recognize him because after we exposed him, he shaved his, his hair off and his beard off. Um, but that beard and long hair are back now. So it, it, he looks exactly like the guy I met in the park that night. And it's very clear to me that he notices me and he recognizes me as well. Because as soon as we walk eyes, his eyes just like narrow to slit. And he just starts glaring at me, like really intensely. And we, we stare at one another for what felt like an eternity, but was likely only a few seconds um, before I start, you know, scribbling away in my notebook. And then soon enough, he you know, sat down at the, at his, the, you know, the defendant's chair, essentially. Um, so that was, uh, that was an intense little moment. Um, and uh, yeah, the first time we had come face to face again. Wow. So uh, I'm, it's pretty, uh, pretty safe to say that your work with this story isn't done yet. Like what, what's, what's going to come of this next? What, what are your next steps in basically telling this story? Yeah. So, I mean, the main thing is it, there's some indication that this is going to go to trial. Um, there are different things that could happen between now and a trial where maybe there's a plea, there's a bunch of different possibilities, but uh, I suspect that this will go to trial. And if it does, I mean, I will go down and I'll cover that trial um, in the U.S. Uh, there's no way that I would miss reporting the story out to its end at this point after everything you know, that's happened. Um, I'm also, I've started broadening um, my study of right-wing extremism. This has certainly made me, it's given me a degree of expertise in, you know, this one organization and this one case, but I've started collecting books um, just on right-wing extremism more generally in Canada in particular, but also North America. Um, and so I, I've kind of been studying that because I hope to be able to tie Patrick Matthews' story into a book that would kind of use the Matthews case, in my experience, infiltrating this one organization as a gateway to take a broader look at right-wing extremism in Canada, um, particularly because we know Matthews isn't an isolated case. We have other extremists in the Canadian Armed Forces, and the number of hate groups operating in this country has exploded over the past couple of years, tripled. Um, so we're, we're seeing a very concerning spike in this kind of right-wing extremist uh, organizing. Um, and I think it's time that uh, there's been a lot of great books on uh, right-wing extremism in the U.S. context, but it's been a long time since we've had one specifically looking at Canada. So I, I hope to be able to uh, put something together on that. And now for people who are listening to this that want to follow along with what, what you're doing, what's the best way for people to, to find you and keep up with things? Uh, we, I'm on Twitter at uh, RK underscore Thorpe, uh, which is T-H-O-R-P-E. Um, and then they can follow my work at with the Winnipeg Free Press, which is just uh, winnipegfreepress.com. 
For months after Patrick Matthews disappeared at the Manitoba border, he lived in the shadows until the FBI knocked down the door of the Delaware apartment he was renting. He was arrested along with two other alleged members of an aggressive neo-Nazi group called The Base. You know, they had guns, they had 1,600 rounds of ammunition, they had vests for body armor. You know, it seemed like they, they might have been up to no good. Matthews had trained to be an explosives expert in the Canadian forces. He had been the subject of a covert military intelligence investigation for his alleged beliefs. But it was a Winnipeg Free Press report into his suspected role as a trainer and recruiter for the base that led to his disappearance. Hate crime experts say the base is a group that believes in triggering a race war so that they can create an ethno-white state. If convicted, Matthews faces up to 10 years in prison for each of the two weapons-related charges he's facing. I want to thank you for joining Ryan Thorpe and I for a discussion that, to be quite honest, surprised me. In considering the things I learned about neo-Nazism during my series with Lindsay Suvonaroth, I think that says a lot. I suppose I've always known that racism and hate existed in Canada. Of course, I've seen it firsthand many times. But I don't think I was aware of this sort of militant, poison-the-water-supply-and-take-down-the-government type racism. Canada, it turns out, is just full of unpleasant surprises. And with that, we'll end this episode of Nighttime. But before we part, I'd like to end with thanks. First and foremost, a huge thank you to our guest Ryan Thorpe of the Winnipeg Free Press. Ryan, your work on this story is simply stunning. You're a true example of how a journalist can change the world around them with little more than some curiosity, some guts, and a pencil. For listeners who want to read Ryan's series of articles and some articles covering the ripple effect of his work, I've added some links in the show notes. It's truly amazing stuff. And now for anyone out there who wants more nighttime, let me suggest the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can access the ad-free early releases of the episodes as well as the nightcap after show in which I and a guest climb a bit deeper down the rabbit hole. You can access the premium feed by visiting patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And with that said, I want to thank the new members of the supporter group, Rick, Mark, and Jack Luna from the Crime Machine podcast. Thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show, but is unable to help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I use the handle at NighttimePod. And for people who like to sit down in front of podcasts rather than walk around with them, I'm also on YouTube. And if you have any story ideas or want to give some feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and stay safe out there. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.